You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor Gare Jones. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 24. If you don't, then we're going to put the screen, the words on the screen as we begin in verse 1 of Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of our Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed light, like lightning stood beside them. In the fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words when they came back from the tomb. They told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. We're going to skip down to verse 36, where now the eleven have heard about what the women have been saying, and they're in the room wondering what's going on. So verse 36, they said, while they were still talking about all of this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they, did not, while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, He asked them, look, do you have anything to eat? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, look, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. I don't know what emotions you would have been going through if you were with the disciples in that room. You'd seen him die. You've seen him crucified. You've heard he's been put in a tomb and the stone has been rolled in front. And all of a sudden, people are saying, we've seen him. We've heard others saying, we've, he's alive. And there you are, his inner circle, in the upper room. Wondering what on earth is going on. And Jesus suddenly enters that room. I don't know what your reactions would have been like. I'd been freaking out personally. But Jesus enters that room and he transforms their lives just as he can transform your life this morning. He transforms their life because the first thing he does, he comes into their room and he transforms their anxiety into peace. He transforms their fear, their anxiety into peace. See, the disciples were seriously anxious. 
for many years now, they'd walked around with Jesus with them. Don't know what that would have been like fully in the flesh to have Jesus with them, but all of their dreams had come true. This was a man that could raise the dead. This is a man that could heal the sick, cast out demons, drive out evil and injustice. And they had been living with him. In fact, they'd been tasting of how humanity had been created to live in intimacy with God. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, it says the, the pattern of how God made the world, how he made us. We see very much in that story, we woven through this line of humanity was created to live with God in relationship with him. We had rebelled against God and decided to take over the world by ourselves and reject him and we see the consequences of the world around us because of that. But the disciples had for a few years discovered, this is what it's like to live with God. The peace, the security. Man, guys, we don't have to worry about a thing because literally Jesus is with us and he can raise the dead. We're good. But suddenly, he was gone. Suddenly, they're left to their own devices. Suddenly, they're no longer in communion, in connection with God, and their future is now in their own hands, not the hands of Jesus who was with them. And they're full of anxiety. What's going to happen to them? Are they going to now die? Are they going to be crucified like Jesus? Are they going to have a future? Are they going to be mocked and their reputation ruined because they'd followed this guy who was no longer with them? They were locked in a room of anxiety. That may be where you're at this morning. You've come here this morning locked in a room of anxiety because you're trying to live life in your own strength, according to your own power. And you recognize there are things which you're facing which seem to be beyond you, that we're not in control of what we want to be in control of. It could be your marriage, it could be your job, your health, could just be your reputation, what other people think of you, that we are trying to live this life outside of the intimacy and the strength and the guidance and the power of God. And we find that left to our own devices, we're full of anxiety. Now, I don't know about you, but living in, a, in LA, we can try and do all sorts of things to get rid of that anxiety. We can juice, we can smoothie, we can yoga, we can do all sorts of stuff. But I don't know about you, but all of those things may give me a temporary burst of detachment and peace, but I suddenly re-engage with the world and I'm full of anxiety again. Life lived in our own strength was never how it was meant to be, and therefore we suffer the consequences of anxiety and fear. But that Easter morning, Jesus didn't want them to live in anxiety anymore. And he bursts into the room, into their anxiety. And the very first thing he says, I love this about Jesus. The very first thing he says is, peace be with you. Peace be with you. He sees their anxiety. He knows their troubled hearts. And he comes in love and says, guys, it's okay. I'm back. I'm back. Death could not hold me. I'm back. I wonder what the relief was in the room. The sense of, oh, okay, we're okay again. I've got solid ground again. I'm not facing the future again by myself, but I have peace because he is with me. And what he did for them 
he can do for you. See, the whole point of Easter weekend from Good Friday to Easter Sunday is to come, that God comes to bring you home, to bring you back into relationship with him. There are barriers and problems in the way of that. Our own behavior, our own rebellion, the brokenness of this world. But just, to, just because we've rejected God, he hasn't rejected you. And in his love, he comes in the person of Jesus. He takes all the barriers between me and you and God and he nails them to the cross. He, he pays the price for the things that we've done that he, we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. And just like on Easter morning when he bursts into the room and says to those disciples, I'm back, peace be with you. He can burst into your life, into your room and say, I'm here. You don't have to be alone. You were never meant to live a life without him. You're never meant to live in the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, but in the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's tempting, isn't it, to say to God, don't tell me how to live, I've got this. And yet the news around the world, the verdict has come in, we have not got this. The great joy of Easter morning is that God sees us struggling, tripping through life on our own, facing marital difficulties on our own, facing health issues on our own, facing issues and uncertainties at work on our own. And we're trying and we're trying, and yet we're filled with anxiety, filled with performance, um, workaholism, full of all these things that destroy us. And he says, will you just come home? I want to give you peace. Even peace with your greatest enemy, death itself, you no longer need to fear. There's something that happened in that room with the disciples, right? Because it wasn't just, oh my gosh, how am we going to walk through life with peace? But what does death now mean for us? Because they were going to face, likely, their own death as followers of Jesus. And yet before them, Jesus could say, peace be with you, not just for this life, but for eternity itself. I am alive and I have conquered death that it no longer has its sting. I am the resurrection and the life. Even though you die, death will not sting you. I remember this story about a father driving down the road, uh, down the highway, down the 405, uh, and, and he was going fast, which is bizarre for the 405. And he was driving down, and his son was in the back of the car, and the window was slightly ajar. And I don't know why I wound the window like that. Uh, clearly, I'm from the 18th century. So, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, his son in the back of the seat goes, Dad, 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 there's a bee in the car, there's a bee in the car, it's going to sting me, it's going to sting me. And his father just looked around and saw this son panicking, afraid and anxious with this bee is going to sting him. And all of a sudden, dad, he just turned around and he did what dads do. And he turned around and just stuck out his hand and he caught the bee in his hand. See, dads can do that. <laughs> and he held the bee in his hand. 
And then after a few seconds, he released his hands and the bee just flew away. And the son went, Dad, Dad, what are you doing? Dad, the bee, you didn't, you didn't kill the bee. Dad, it's going to sting me. And he said, son, relax, relax. Look at my hand. Look at my hand. Look. Do you see the sting? He says, son, I've been stung. I've taken the sting that this bee can no longer sting you. And when Jesus walks into that room, he not only says, peace be with you, but he shows them his hand and says, friends, brothers, sisters, you don't need need to be anxious anymore because I'm with you. And even upon death, death can sting you no more. I'm alive and you will join me forever. Whatever anxiety we're facing today, even the anxiety of death, he brings us the peace that only he can bring. But see, the resurrected Jesus doesn't just stop with peace. He comes in and he recognizes that they are not just simply anxious, but they're doubting all these stories of Jesus kind of being alive. And it says in this next verse, he says, um, uh, where's my next verse? There you go. No, next verse. I've missed, I've all messed up. Great. They were startled and frightened. See, they were startled and frightened. They saw Jesus. They were startled and frightened. And it says, thinking they saw a ghost. I love the disciples were not gullible. They were not easy, easily persuaded. They thought they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why did doubts rise in your minds? I mean, if I was there, I'd go, why? Because dead people don't come back to life, Jesus. See, I've empathized with the disciples. I too, not just be startled and frightened, but I'd be going, whoa, time out. I'm not too sure I believe this. You see, we can all have a spiritual worldview, can't we? Uh, We can all have like, I kind of have this spiritual experience and I prefer this and I prefer that and my view is this. And, but hang on a minute, but no one says it's actually true. Because for it to be truth like gravity, there needs to be evidence. And the disciples were going, hey, where's the evidence of this? Is this a hologram? Is this some kind of trick? Has Peter kind of spiked our drinks again? What's going on? And so Jesus, knowing their doubts, and I love this about Jesus, he values their doubts. He doesn't expect them to take a blind leap of faith. He doesn't expect them just to go, oh, okay, he's alive, awesome. And so he gives them evidence. And he says to them, look, look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me. Look, don't just look. Come on. Come on. Everyone come. Touch. Come on. Touch. See, I'm not a ghost. I've got flesh and bones. It is me. The disciples were forever changed that day not just because they had a spiritual experience, but they had an experience of the truth of the resurrected Jesus. So much so, when their spiritual warm and fuzzies disappear, they still couldn't deny the truth. 
See, Jesus knows that when you follow him, it's not all gonna be spiritual highs. There's gonna be tough times. And yet, our faith is not based on warm, gooey feelings. Our faith is based on the historical reality of Jesus rose from the dead. And therefore, I'm a hostage to that truth. I can't deny it, just like I can't suddenly go, huh, I don't believe in gravity anymore. This is what Jesus was doing for the disciples, laying a foundation of evidence in their life that would forever change them. And no matter how many people would come and go, really? So we're a hostage to the truth. I remember when I was leaving business, I was in business for about 12 years and, and felt God surprisingly and convincingly call me out and to go to ministry, go to seminary, kind of pastor school, and I was excited, but it was a shock to everyone I worked with. And there's a few people saying goodbye to me when I was going uh, my last day, and actually some clients said, hey, yeah, we'd like to take you for lunch. So I went, great. So I thought, how nice of them to take me for a nice thank you lunch. We went to this really beautiful restaurant in Geneva, Switzerland, where I was working, and it was beautiful. And we were having a nice time, and yet it was something was odd was happening, because they weren't actually saying goodbye and thank you over the meal. We were just talking about general stuff, and then they kind of like interrupted and rang the little you know, says fork against the glass. I thought, here we go, here's the thanks. But no. They looked at me and said, Gail, look, we've heard that you're leaving your career, we've loved working with you, and um, we all decided to take you out for lunch because we think you need an intervention. <laughs> it was like, we've heard you're going to be a pastor. And, and we knew that you had a faith, which is awesome, right? And we knew that you went to church a lot, which is great. We love the community uh, being good in society. We, we've, we, thought, we know you have a belief system, which is, which is really good. But we kind of want to say that we know you're intelligent. We know that like, you value evidence. You used to be a lawyer. We know these things about you. So we kind of just have to intervene and go, you know it's not true, don't you? I said... What? So we know you have a faith system. We know you believe all, we know like, you really take it seriously. But, but we, you know it's not true. Like, this is not something to give up your career for. This is a comfort in bad times, a little crutch when you're going through difficulties. This is, n don't throw away your life. I went, guys, I really appreciate the heart behind this. Um... But I actually think it's true. And I remember going through my own doubts in my 20s about whether this is true or not. I remember researching whether this is true or not. I remember rejecting the church because I really didn't like church. I really didn't like pastors. But I had to come to the terms of, well, do I believe Jesus is true? Did he really rise from the dead? Because if he really did rise from the dead, then that's a fact which I have to do something about. And I remember going through all the evidence and surprisingly, finding it really compelling that I don't think I'm gullible. I didn't really want to believe it because I was not in the church at the time and I really didn't like church. I didn't want to believe it, but I became a hostage to, I actually think this is true. I remember looking at, well, how on earth did Christianity start if something didn't happen like this? What happened to the body if the tomb 
was empty. What happened to these disciples that were afraid and timid and thought they might even lose their own lives and yet suddenly became martyrs and thousands upon thousands of them claimed to see the risen Jesus and went to their own death, not recanting. It would have been super simple to recant and go, oh, I was just making it up, don't kill me. But they didn't. What was it that provoked this spark of this massive movement of Jesus followers, knowing that all of them were going to be persecuted by Rome? I remember reading an interview with Chuck Colson, who was one of Nixon's hatchet men in the Watergate scandal, and then he went to prison, rightfully so, and then became a Christian. And someone in prison asked him, hey, why do you believe in the resurrection? And he said this, he said, look, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. He said, how? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. (laughs) You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. But of course, the evidence is not just historical. The evidence is also experiential. And though at times in my life I've tried to walk away from Jesus, not because I'm upset with Jesus, but I've been upset with Christians at times. Or I've felt, man, this is really hard work being a Christian because there's lots of opposition. I'm a hostage to the historical evidence of the risen Jesus, but also the personal evidence of the risen Jesus. I remember when I was five years old, I first met Jesus. We were fairly poor at that stage as a family, and so four children shoehorned in to a small home. My brother and I shared a bed. He was five, he's five years older than me. And obviously that Sunday at church, we'd been to church that morning, and he'd been told about, you've got to tell people about Jesus, and you've got to convert them, and you've got to get them to say this prayer, and for them to become a Christian. And I didn't know that, but I was in bed that night trying to go to sleep, I was five, and my brother just nudged me, and went, what? He said, wake up. I went, now I'm going to sleep, what is it? He went, say this prayer. I went, What? <laughs> He said, you've got to become a Christian. I went, what? I'm trying to go to sleep. Say this prayer or I'll beat you up. I go, okay. As any good younger brother does. I was like, okay. And then he says, Jesus, I'm sorry for what I've done. So I repeated this prayer and apparently became a Christian because uh, my brother told me to. Not the best strategy, by the way, telling others about Jesus. But something happened that night. Something happened that night. I had a dream. And I'm not one of these people who has a lot of dreams and say, God gave me that dream. I've had a couple in my life. But that night, God gave me a dream. And we were in the dream, I was with my best friends. And we were playing in the fields behind our house on the rolling hills of Yorkshire. It was springtime, the grass was tall, the sun was out, and the spring flowers were all around. 
And we were rolling around and playing hide and seek in the long grass and, and it felt amazing. But what was really precious about it, it felt different because there was this guy with us who was just like the best fun. And it just felt, wow, this is awesome. Something about this man just felt like life was the best I'd ever experienced it. And at one point in the playtime, he said, come on guys, let's all gather around. And we all sat in a circle. There's about 10 or so of us, if I can remember, around that number. And he was opposite me, but he said, look, let's, let's make some daisy chains, which we used to make as kids in the wildflowers of the Yorkshire green hills. And you take these little daisies and you put a little hole in the end of the stalk and wrap a little daisy in and you make a little daisy chain and you put it around and you give it to a little girl that you might fancy. Um, <laughs> And we were making these daisy chains. And then halfway through the daisy chain, I was making them. I looked up and he looked up and he caught my eyes. And I could tell, I think this is Jesus. I remember him looking at me like no one else has looked at me. And he said these words. He said, yeah, I will never leave you. And I woke up. And I woke up and I knew I'd met with Jesus. I knew, even as a fiver, I knew. Is this what God is like? That he'll never leave me. I'd met the resurrected Jesus as a little boy at five in my dream. And we could like push that down and go, it's just a little dream of a five-year-old. And I've sometimes tried to do that. But what I've done in all my life is I've remembered that and what it felt like. And every time I've run away from God and tried to do something outside of him, I've come back to that dream. But I've also had another experience of encountering his presence and go, oh yes, I'm at home with Jesus. He's here. He's alive. Easter Sunday is an opportunity for you to discover, not just historically, but experientially, he's alive. That he can look you in the eyes and say, I will never leave you. That there's always gonna be a step of faith, but it's not a blind leap of faith, it's a step of faith based on solid evidence that he rose from the dead. And what I found is that is I've stepped out onto the uncertainty that kind of that little faith that you still need, but based on solid evidence, and I've stepped forward, I found that my feet land on the experience of he's alive and he's real and I know him. This is the great invitation of Easter. To consider the evidence and to take a step into a relationship with him. But the disciples weren't finished. They were fearful to begin with, full of anxiety. They then were full of doubt and they're seeing this evidence, but then they don't believe yet. It says in this passage in verse 40, he says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And then it says this, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. Joy and amazement. In other words, another translation put it, it was so good, it was too good to believe. It was so good, they thought, there must be a catch. That this is too good. They were so amazed and so joyful, maybe they've been hurt before by 
believing in something that didn't come through. Maybe they just didn't want to be gullible. I don't know. But there was something in what they discovered that was so joyful and so amazing, they were cautious and going, it can't be this good. There was something when they touched his hands and his feet that was like, this is, this is too good. And in the world of the disciples, we read later on what that is. is because Jesus says, look, all of this has happened to fulfill the law and the prophets. And the disciples knew that what they saw in front of them was not just a Jesus that was back to life. There was something far deeper and richer going on. Because when they touched his hands and his side, the wounds had been healed. This wasn't a a suffering Jesus just kind of, oh, I'm alive. (laughs) Oh, I made it. It was, oh. That would be the case if a dead person came back to life. But they were seeing a man healed, restored. His old body had been totally fixed and given some kind of new dimension that he could appear in rooms which were locked. Now we go, okay, what's going on? They knew exactly what was going on. See, Jesus said, this is, remember, this is to fulfill what was said in the law and the prophets. In the Old Testament, the prophets had said that one day, all the evil in the world, all the sickness in the world, all the pain in the world will be healed. That God would restore all things. That he will come out of love for humanity. He will rescue humanity out of the pain and brokenness. And he will turn back the brokenness that we have brought. He will push back the evil that we have done. And he will even restore the pain into goodness that we have caused. That the whole world would begin to feel and see the restoration and healing of God. And this was called the day of resurrection. That one day God will call time and resurrect all of the good things and push back the bad things. And then they could see in Jesus, hang on, hang on, you've been resurrected. You're not just back again from the grave. You've been healed. You've been restored. That it's happening. That this is it. The day day has started when God is with us, not just to comfort us, to guide us through life, but to finally restore and heal all that is wrong in the world. This is what God has come to do in Jesus. And they looked at him and they thought, I think this is too good to believe because God has just done this. And we bizarrely can look at the good message of Easter, the gospel message of Easter, and we too can say, Whoa, I'm not too sure I believe this. Okay, Jesus rose from the dead, but what Jesus is God who's done all of this for me? That he loves me? That he came to die for me? That he cleansed, he took all the punishment of all the things I've ever done, past, present, and future. He paid the price for them? That he then wants to cleanse me? That he wants to actually forgive me? He wants to bring me into his family? He actually wants to bring me into his friendship. He wants to actually live with me. He wants to give me a purpose to help him restore the world around me. And hang on a minute, and I have to don't do anything? I mean, I don't do a thing for this. This is too good to believe. And so often that we can get into this 
this seems way too easy. And that can push us back from the great offer of life that Jesus has for us. I was once playing golf with this guy, and I hadn't met him before, but I'd gone to play golf up at this course in Simi Valley. I went by myself um, and just thought, I want to play golf. And they paired me up with this guy. And so we went off and we shared this golf cart. We went off driving down the golf first hole. And I thought, you know what? Let's get to know each other. So I said, hey, mate, what do you do, mate? And who are you? And he said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a dental implant specialist. I've never met one of them before. Um, that's amazing. And where are you from? He said, I'm from Colombia. I went, you're a Colombian dental implant specialist in Simi Valley. Okay, I need to hear this story. And so he told me about his story about being this dentist in Colombia, and then his family and him moved to America for a better life. And I went, well, how's it going? And he went, it's going really bad. He said, the work is going okay, but he said, oh man, I've messed up. I thought, wow. He's being very open. I mean, I've messed up. I don't really see my wife anymore. I don't see my kids anymore. And it's, it's, it's bad. I, I, I don't know what to do to turn it around. We don't go to church anymore. He said, we used to go to, used to, go to mass a lot. And he says, my life's over. No wonder he's playing golf by himself with me. And so... At that point, he says, well, what do you do? <laughs> and I go, well, mate, I said, actually, I'm, I'm a pastor of a church. And he looked at me. We're like, his face went white. And he went, father. <laughs> I went, dude, I'm not your father. <laughs> right. And he went, what must I, I said, he said, I've got, to, I've got to do something. I've been so bad. I, I, God must hate me. And I've got to get back on track. I, I must do things. I went, mate, you don't have to. So I tried to like, explain the good news of the gospel to him. That God loves us, not because we're good, but actually because he's good. And you know, he, he, I think I even said that he was nailed to the cross so you can stop nailing yourself to the cross. And I said, look, but he didn't believe it. He went, no, no, I've got to be good. He just didn't believe. He said, it's too easy, too easy. He said, I've got to start being a good person so God can like me again and maybe help me. I went, oh man. And at that point, we were getting to the ninth hole, which is like where the restaurant is and the little snack shack. I was starving. And so I went up to the till and I'd ordered the massive like double smash burger and extra fries and big old Gatorade. And she said, that's like $55. And so I got up. <laughs> Got, as I got out my wallet, right, suddenly from behind me, like, like a ninja in the night, this, like this Colombian dental implant guilt-ridden specialist said, Father, I must pay for this. <laughs> I thought, dude, this guilt, this guilt is not doing you well. <laughs> but thank you very much. <laughs> but he couldn't get it. It was too good. That God could not love me this much. That he would die for me regardless of what I've done. That he would take the punishment onto himself for what I've done. That he would cleanse me. That I don't have to be punished myself. I don't have to pay the justice myself. 
that he would pay it for me, that he would then bring me into his family, that he would then say, come on, let's now restore the world together and we're gonna begin with your relationship with your wife, we're gonna begin with the relationship with your kids because greater is he that is in you than he is in the world, that whatever's been damaged with Jesus, we can restore and fix. Let's do this together. He's going, it's too good. Surely it can't be this good. It's the amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. This is the good news of Easter. A friend of mine who is now an Oscar-winning author and illustrator was trying to explain that God loves us by grace, not by performance. It's a free gift if you receive his love and his redemption and his healing, not through what you've done, but through what he's done for you. And we just couldn't get it. And he was trying to explain it to some young people, I think a youth group. And he said, look, let me draw something for you. He said, look, look at this picture, the first picture. This is what we all think life is like with God. We've got to get all, we've got to do it perfectly. We can't go over the lines God will like us and love us if we do it all right. That life is spent just like making sure that we obey. And if we obey and if we perform and if we do, then God will like us. But the problem is, he said, I don't know about you, he said, but my life, I realize, I look at that and go, that's nothing like my life. My life is more like this. And he puts up this. <laughs> this is me. I'm a mess. The things I want to do, I don't do. Every January the 1st, I think I must be a better person. And by January the 2nd, I realize I'm a terrible person. The things that we all do in this world contribute to the evil in this world. We can't escape it. Well, how on earth do we move forward? How do we get right with God and with others if that is truly who we are? And so he goes on to explain that the message of Easter is not that God loves us and rescues us because of that first picture. It's when we are this picture, he loves us. He rescues us. He paid the price for us. He walked into the room of our lives, full of anxiety, full of fear, full of mess, and he says to each of us, peace be with you. I've gone to the cross. I've defeated death. I've removed the barrier. Now if you receive me, I will live for you and with you forever. This is the good news of Easter. He never forces that onto us. But he says in Revelation chapter three that he's knocking on the door of our lives, going, do you want to welcome me in? And if we open the door and let him in, he will do what he did with the disciples, bring us peace and be with us forever. I wanna make a moment this morning just for someone, maybe just one person who goes, I wanna open the door to let him into my life. I needed someone to make space for me one day when I was 26. I needed someone to go, well, I want to make this space. And I went, it's time. I want that for me. I want to come back to Jesus. So I'm going to say a prayer in a few seconds. You can say it silently in your heart. 
I'm not going to ask you to do anything else out loud. But he hears your prayer that he would come into your room, into your life, and be with you forever. So let's close our eyes. I want to make an opportunity. If, um, as we close our eyes, we're just creating a safe space for everyone. And I want to ask if you want to say that prayer this morning. Just simply on the count of three, raise your hand that I can see you, no one else will, and that we together can pray silently. So on the count of three, raise your hand. One, two, three, just raise your hand. Great, okay, you put your hand down. Let's say this prayer together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you came for me. Thank you that you defeated sin and Satan and all these things on the cross that I may come back into relationship with you. Forgive me for the things I've done. Forgive me for the things I've done against you, against others, and against myself. Forgive me. Now please fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your presence that I now know forever, like the disciples in that room, that you are with me. And you adopt me into your family. And I'm yours forever. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Why don't we stand together? If you've prayed that prayer, I'd invite you to share that, that you said that prayer with someone you came with. We'd love to have you back and talk to you more about that. But we're gonna take communion together. That this is not a meal of defeat, but a meal of victory. That death is no longer because of the death of Jesus Christ. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. He broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine and he gave thanks and he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, let's peel off the bread side and take out the gluten-free <laughs> church, the body of Christ given for you. And now on the, the grape juice side, church, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And so Jesus, as we eat of this body and this blood, we praise you that you are alive. You defeated our greatest enemies and you're with us. Promise to never leave us. And as we walk with you now throughout the rest of our lives and eternity, we walk with the risen Jesus who loves us and gave his life for us. Let's worship together. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.